Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Clay Routledge, PhD. Clay is a leading expert in existential psychology. He's the director and vice president of research at the Human Flourishing Lab at the Archbridge Institute. And he's co-editor of Profectus, an online magazine on human progress and flourishing. Clay is a highly cited researcher who's published more than a hundred scholarly papers, and his work has been cited by many media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and more. With Sounds True, I'm proud to say that Clay is the author of a new book. It's called Past Forward, How Nostalgia Can Help You Live a More Meaningful Life. Clay, welcome to Insights at the Edge. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Of course, I want to talk about nostalgia, the power of nostalgia in our lives, and your new book, Past Forward. But before we get there, there's a topic really important to me that I want to start our conversation by addressing, which has to do with what you've discovered at the Human Flourishing Lab about what supports our sense of agency. I know that agency is an important aspect of existential psychology? How do we help people feel like they have choice and that they can put their energy into something that will move themselves, their community, and our culture forward? And I wanted to start here because I think right here at this moment in time during this conversation, a lot of people feel a sense of helplessness. They feel like nothing I do really matters. Come on, look at, you know, Tammy, warfare, climate, destruction, Really? My agency matters? So I'd love to know how you view that as an existential psychologist and what you've found at the Human Flourishing Lab supports our sense of agency. Thank you for that question. I, um, agency is at the center of a, a lot of the work I do. As you noted, it's, a, it's, it's an important component of existential psychology. One of the books that has most influenced my, my own research is Viktor Frankl's Man's search for meaning. And an important observation that Frankel makes in his book, which is, um, you know, he's talking about a time in a concentration camp during a Nazi concentration camp during World War II, is it can seem like 
in extreme circumstances like that, clearly you don't have agency, right? You, you know, these are people that are being held against their will by violence and who are being executed. And what he noted was even in such circumstances, when everything things hope feels hopeless and you actually don't have a lot of freedom, um, you still control your own thoughts, like what's inside of your head. Like people can't get to that. And so at the core of agency is an appreciation for the capacity of the human mind and the human spirit, even when life seems horrible and even when so much it feels like it's out of our control. And I think starting there with that recognition of um, the incredible power of of advanced human capacities, you know, our brains. Really. So neuroscientists might lay out all the ways in which our, our brains are highly sophisticated and involve all of these structures and processes that make us an especially intelligent organism. But more conversationally, we, you know, we can all recognize that we're, refl- we're a reflective species. We can think and we can direct our thoughts inward. We can figure out what we want to do with our lives. We can focus on our goals. And that's all very, very important for acknowledging our, our agency. It's often what I call the, the, the meaning mindset. So the part, a, the, a critical feature of living a meaningful life is starting with that, with that awareness that Frankel pointed out that we, um, we have to believe in our ability to live meaningful lives. We have to believe in our psychological freedom that people cannot control our, our thoughts, our values, um, you know, what we care about, what we're, what we want to, um, what we want to focus our attention on. So th- all that's really, really important, but connecting it to our work at the human flourishing lab, one of the things that I've discovered and not just me, a lot of researchers in this space have started kind of finding clues to support is that it might seem counterintuitive, but even though it's important to start with our own thoughts, like agency is very much about that mindset, we find agency out in the world through action. And so you have to get outside of your head. Like, you know, it's, it's good to start in your head to figure out what your priorities and goals are. But really what we're discovering is you feel the greatest sense of agency and the greatest sense of meaning in life when you're actually out there making a difference in other people's lives. So meaning is really about social significance. It's really about saying like, how do you know you matter? Well, I matter because I'm actually trying to improve the world. I'm trying to improve other people's lives. And you made a good point about how it's easy to look at um, at some of the big global challenges we face and feel like, well, what can I'm just you know one little person here? What can I do? And um, especially in our like hyper connected world, we're, we're online a lot, and it's you know we just see these things happening all over the world that seem horrible. It's easy to feel like, well, I have I can have no impact on that. It's good in those times to refocus on, well, what can you do? Well, you, you you can certainly make a difference in your own household. You can make a difference in your own community. And if you start there, then oftentimes, you you know, you can scale up. You can think about how you, actions that start at home, that start in your neighborhood, um, can spread um, beyond that. Um, but even if they didn't, that's that's an important that's an important endeavor is just working to improve the, the, your own life and the lives of people are, uh, around you. And I think that's really where agency is. It's in action. You know, so I, one of the projects we're working on at the Human Flourishing Lab is what we call agency in action. And it's a recognition of, yeah, it's important to, to think about goals and priorities and values and all that. But putting those things into action is where you're going to see your life really, like really matter. And that's, that's kind of what's going to spark human flourishing. 
The image that's occurring to me, unfortunately, is a landslide that's coming down. And here I am as this little human agentic form, working on my own thoughts and attitudes, helping my community, but I'm still being caught in this uh, landslide of death and destruction. And I just don't feel very hopeful. <laughs> what would you say that since like my actions are, they're not even a, they're a drop in a bucket that has a hole in it, something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, another thing that, that I think is interesting about agency is when you recognize your own agency and you start taking actions to exercise the agency, you're more likely to see the agency and others, which increases social trust, it increases cooperation. Um, and so it's not just that I'm doing this and the whole, everything else is falling apart around me. If we ever have any, if you ever want to have any hope of other people doing things and collaborating, cooperating, working together to improve the world, to advance progress in some way, um, it starts by recognizing they have agency too. And, you know, we have to see our own agency to recognize other people's agency, I think. And then it, it, the idea is to build a culture of agency, right? To, you know, to be like, well, we can all, I can't do this by myself. We all need to work together to do this. Um, but I really think it starts at that, you know, at that low level. We had to build that that sense of like trust and hope, at, you know, kind of a local level for it to, for it to spread outward. Okay, building a culture of agency. I love that phrase. I couldn't help but pick up on it. That's what I want to help do. And I think that that's what many listeners to Insights at the Edge want to help do. What do you recommend if that's our focus? That's our our value. That's what we want to do. Well, I think one of the one of the benefits of the action approach to agency, like I said, you're going to feel the most agentic and, and the most meaningful when you're actually doing things, not just sitting around thinking, but doing things. You got to get out of your head and out into the world. Well, then other people see that you're doing things and they're like, hey, if Clay can do things, I can do things. And then I see you doing things and I'm like, oh, you can do things too. So I think just like starting, like taking action. And so, you know, if you want a concrete example, um, you know, maybe people are worried about um, I'll give you like a, an actual example, not a hypothetical. So I was watching, I was watching the news one time, which I don't like to watch news because it's kind of, you know, it's like you're talking about, it's kind of depressing. It's like one negative story after another, but sometimes in the news, they do these little positive stories and they were showing this, this school, I can't remember what state it was, but they were showing the school in the United States that was having a real problem with violence in the school, like teenage boys in particular. Um, and you know, some of it was gang related perhaps, it was just, but there was this real culture of like kids getting into trouble, boys getting into fights, people getting kicked out of school, people not feeling safe. And it created this real culture of like, you know, like wasn't good for education. And people were frustrated because they're like, well, the school's not doing enough. Maybe the police aren't doing enough. But then people are like, well, we don't really want the police in schools. Please don't belong in schools. And so they're, you know, how do you solve this? And then this group, you know, this group of dads, starting with this one dad said, well, we'll go in and help. And I'm not suggesting this is the ideal solution, but they took it upon themselves to be like, well, you know, maybe if there were more male men around in the school, like watching, mentoring, if seeing a fight's about to break off and intervening and modeling better behavior, um, then that would be a good way to sort of reduce conflict and sort of change the culture in the school. And one dad started doing that and then other dads started volunteering. And so this whole group of dads 
um, started essentially working as volunteers in a school um, to change the culture of violence in that school. So that's a good example at a local level of people being frustrated, not knowing, you know, what the clear answer was. They're clearly being trade-offs to different, you know, different models. Um, understandably, there was some apprehension about, well, we should bring in police, for instance. And so they're like, well, what can we do? Well, we can do something ourselves as the dads. Like we can go in and, and, and try to supervise and try to offer not just surveillance, but, you know, intervention of, you know, seeing where where conflicts are emerging and how they can de-escalate them and then maybe how they can mentor these boys to have a different response. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's just a very small local example. Um, but I think that, you know, you see stuff like that and then oftentimes you'll see that spread. You'll see something that starts off as a local phenomenon turn into a, like a, a national movement where there's chapters all over the country of of people trying to do something. And so, it, um, I mean, this was kind of the history of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, right? It's like um, one mom started with a, you know, a very tragic story and then ended up building this national movement to, you know, to dramatically change um, our, you know, not just our views, but the laws um, around drinking and driving. And so I think that's, it, all that requires taking that, like doing something, trying. <laughs> And sometimes attempts fail that, you know, any entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur will tell you that, you know, failure is very much part of it. Um, but what's important is, you know, you getting out there and, and, and taking a shot um, and, and trying to spread that culture of like, that's how that's what we have to do. It's easy to sit around and complain about things. But if we want to make things better, we've got to get out there um, and have some skin in the game. All right. Uh, Clay, thank you for bringing your skin into the game <laughs> through this conversation and the many conversations and the research and work you're doing at the Human Flourishing Lab, it was curious to me that in the center of all of the research that you've been doing the last 20 plus years, you decided to focus your writing on the topic of nostalgia, the power of nostalgia. And I was a little bit like, first, like, what? Why? Why are we going back in order to move forward? I don't get this. Tell me how your own interest in nostalgia developed. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. When I was in college, I started to become interested in the human like appreciation and understanding of, of of time. I've always been into time travel movies and science fiction and, and, and things like that. Um, but but I, I, I was struck by this idea that like the subjective experience of time, which is we can measure time, you know, quite precisely, actually. Right. Um, but sometimes, you know, a, a moment will feel like it's longer than another. And um, and so our experience of time has these other components that are perhaps non-objective. And so that's really where I started thinking about, well, how do people experience time? And um, that was when I was an undergrad and I started messing around with, with doing some like experiments on that, that, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. So they, so they weren't great. But then when I went to graduate school, um, I went into this direction that's called existential psychology, which is really how do humans grapple with the big questions about the, the nature of existence and their place in the universe. And importantly, how does that affect our psychological functioning? What does it mean to be an organism that can ask these questions? And is, is that good for us? Is that bad for us? And, and so forth. And once again, the issue of time came up and, and more specifically, uh, uh, a term called um, temporal consciousness. And so this is our ability to think about the future and the past. So one of the things that we think is um, unique to, to humans is we don't just live in the present. We don't just live in the moment. 
we sit around and we think about five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we think about tomorrow. Um, and when I first started doing this research, I was very, very focused on that kind of future oriented thinking. Like, what does it mean to be an organism capable of thinking about the future? On the one hand, it's cool, right? Because I can, I can plan for the future. I can be like, well, if I save money, <laughs> I can do this. Or if I work hard, I can, you know, progress on my career goals. If I, if I get up every day and I exercise, maybe eventually I'll be able to run a marathon. So our, our ability to, to think about the future is very important for our ability to pursue goals. Um, but also I thought, you know, an, an interesting um, component of this, it's, it's also bad for us. Because when we think about the future, oftentimes we get anxious, we get afraid, we think about horrible things that could happen to us. We think about um, what will ultimately happen to us, the ultimate existential um, challenge, which is our, our eventual mortality. And so I started thinking about that stuff and there was a bunch of research on, on how our ability to think about the future can cause existential anxiety. And, and I was very interested in that. But then I started thinking, well, it's not just that we think about the future and that makes us anxious, but we also think about the, the past. And these two things might actually be connected. If thinking about the future can make us anxious, maybe we turn to the past for comfort to relieve that anxiety. And that's really where I got started thinking about nostalgia was, is nostalgia at least in part a response to our ability to think about the future and the fears associated with that future. So the future is often uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen to us. Um, there's all sorts of possibilities, good and bad. And maybe that uncertainty makes us seek some kind of comfort, some kind of stability in our lives. And that's where our, our, our cherished memories come into play. And so, so that's really how I, I, I started this was thinking about the future. And then that led me to, well, people think about the past. And then ultimately that led me to thinking, well, actually, is our thinking about the past really about the future? Like, it seems like a lot of people think of nostalgia often as some type of like hiding in the past or some type of escapism, right? We are not satisfied in the present. So we look backwards to a time where maybe, you know, we, we feel like things were better and that holds us back, that that's kind of a barrier to like fully living in the present. And, and what we started to discover um, was no, it might actually be the thing we need to help us like figure out a way forward in our lives. And so um, now I've come to believe that, you know, this kind of like past oriented, future oriented thinking are very, very related. That's not, it's not we're either looking to the past or we're looking to the future. It's often we're doing both as a way to navigate the, the world. Well, I have to ask you this question because a lot of the teachers and books that we publish, it sounds true, focus on something like nowness. Mm -hmm. They're not interested particularly in projecting into the future and all the anxiety that comes with that or trying to make sense of the past or like increase your sense of present time orientation to feel the most content. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that in terms of your own look at time? What about timelessness? Right. No, I think that, I think that's definitely important as well. And I think that on the surface, it might seem like they're in, in conflict, but I think they go together Quite well. Here, here's um, here's one piece of research that's interesting. So um, people looked at the, you know, what's the similarity and differences between happiness and meaning in life, and what they found was that when happiness is really kind of a present oriented state, like how are things going right now? Are you are you happy? Or are you not happy? Right. Whereas 
living a meaningful life often it involves something deeper. Now, meaning and happiness are positively correlated. It's easier to feel like your life's meaningful when you're in a good mood than when you're in a bad mood. But we also know a lot of the most fulfilling things, the things that really give our life some deep meaning are difficult, right? They involve unpleasant emotions. They involve stress. They involve pursuing difficult goals. They involve making difficult choices. They involve some of the bittersweet elements of life. Sometimes even tragic things serve as reminders of how precious our time is and how much we need to, um, to really like live in the moment, as you, uh, uh, as you noted. And so oftentimes we're, we're pursuing multiple motives. Like we're pursuing like well-being is, is, is complex. So, you know, I, uh, I believe in like a, a holistic approach to well-being. It's not just happiness. It's not just social connectedness. It's not just spirituality. It's not just, you know, um, it's not just one thing or another. It, it, it involves a whole bunch of things because humans are complicated. And so likewise, I think um, we we need to live in the moment. We need to savor the moment. In fact, there's research showing the more we do that, actually, the, the more the things we're doing in the moment lead to nostalgia in the future. Like savoring experiences creates helps create the types of memories that you end up being nostalgic for later. Um, but we don't just live in the moment. Like I said, humans are you know highly advanced. Like we we. We try to um, we can try to grab that moment. Well, we also have to just as a function of of our, the nature of our species, we have to you know we have to plan for the future too, and we have to you know um, we have to plan for the next moment. We have to plan for the next opportunity to to savor. And so as we're as we're sort of navigating that space between nowness and also being this more like advanced temporal consciousness. Um, I think nostalgia can um, really comes into play in helping us figure out the path towards what, how we want to spend the next moment, how we want to spend the next year, how we want to spend the next five years. And within that, then we want to have, you know, these moments that we can really savor. In immersing myself in your work on Past Forward, I kept going into uh, the memory bank, asking myself, is this a nostalgic memory? Is this not a nostalgic memory? How would I know? What what are the characteristics of a memory that you'd say, oh, that's nostalgic, Tammy? That's what Clay's pointing to. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, that we did to get at that question, which was we uh, we, we went all over the world. Actually, um, we've done studies in dozens of nations now. We wanted to get a sense of like what do people think is nostalgic, right? Like we can kind of define it in our own way, like at a kind of like a theoretical level, but what, is there a consensus among ordinary people all over the world about what counts as nostalgia? And so we've done this in a number of ways to try to like pinpoint this, this issue of what's a nostalgic memory versus a non-nostalgic memory. One thing we did is we just asked people to, to write down a nostalgic memory, you know, in a narrative form. And then we've used these kind of narrative analysis to sort of get a snapshot of what nostalgic memories tend to be versus having them write about other types of, you know, like autobiographical memories. So tell us about an ordinary life experience from the past versus tell us about an experience that, that, that makes you nostalgic. Um, and what we find is nostalgic experiences tend to be things that follow um, uh, uh, what's called a, a, a redemptive sequence or have this kind of bittersweet element. And so you've probably heard of nostalgia is, is, you know, sometimes a little bit sad, sometimes happy, 
And so it, it's, this, it's this emotional cocktail. And often this is the case because when people, are, um, when people share a nostalgic um, experience from their life, um, it isn't just, a, oh, he did something fun one day. Um, there, there is a sense of like accomplishment or like it's um, it, something epic to it. Like we went on this vacation and we, you know, we were, you know, you know, this happened and we got rained out and we got stuck in the hotel or something like that. But then we ended up playing board games and, you know, we ended up having, you know, having this great time. So oftentimes there, there's that kind of element to it. Another feature of nostalgic um, narratives compared to ordinary events is um, they often, not always, but they often feature like culturally meaningful experiences. So these are rites of passage or ceremonies, you know, graduations, marriages, or weddings, a birth of a child, um, um, special holidays, things like that. Things that are rarer than like mundane events um, is, you know, another, uh, is another thing that kind of characterizes them compared to ordinary experiences. And, uh, but centrally, um, people will recognize that a nostalgic meaning or a nostalgic um, memory is a personally meaningful memory. And what that means is there's going to be a lot of um, variety because these are idiosyncratic. Like, you're, you know, what's a special memory to you? You might have a special memory of going to the, a, an ice cream parlor with a parent or something like that. And someone else would be like, that was just kind of an ordinary thing. But to you, it was special. So that specialness of it um, really matters. And so that's one way we, we've looked at this. We've had people, you know, write about it. And then we've we've kind of said, is there, is there a general consensus all over of what people seem to think of nostalgia? And obviously it's not it's not black and white. There is some ambiguity there. But another way we've done it, which I think is really, really cool as well, is we've had people write down these nostalgic memories or write down other types of memories. And then we've taken those memories and we've taken, we've made sure there's the word nostalgia is not in there and we've removed it if, if they do write the word nostalgia. Um, and then we've given those, given those stories to other people. Um, and then we've asked them to read these and we've asked them to tell us, is this a nostalgic or non-nostalgic memory? And people are really, really good at getting it right. Um, so people can, another way of saying this is people know nostalgia when they see it. It's like hard to, it's hard to define. It's hard to articulate, articulate, but if they read somebody else's memory, they're very, very accurate at telling you whether or not that was nostalgic to that person, which I think is another, um, another good evidence that there is, um, even though people might not have a difficult time, like consciously explaining that everyone kind of understands nostalgia when they see it. In searching my own memory bank for nostalgic memories to bring up to really understand how this is going to empower agency and meaning in my life, which is the point of your book, Past Forward, I often hit painful experiences like, mm -hmm. oh, this was a nostalgic memory connected to a relationship that actually went south, mm -hmm. went sour, like, oh God. So now I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to discount that memory because it brings up the conflict or disappointment that also occurred. What, what do you do about that when you're working with nostalgia? Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the ways I really, really saw that what you're talking about exemplified was when we first started doing this work, I was a professor um, well, when I finished, you know, I was doing this when I was in grad school, but when I first started doing this professionally as like a, you know, as a PhD graduate professor, I was at the University of Southampton in, in the UK. And one of the first studies we did there when, when I was working on this is we, we went around like neighborhoods in our city 
um, and we collected nostalgic narratives from older British adults. These were people that were old enough, many of them, to have been children during World War II. Now, Southampton, where we lived, um, 90% of that, nearly 90% of that city was destroyed by um, German bombing during World War II. So you had a lot of um, people whose experiences as children were their dads being sent off to the continent to, to wage war against Germany, um, being separated even from you know their mothers being sent to live out in the country with grandparents, um, it, you know, seeing a lot of tragedy, a lot of disruption, a lot of separation in their lives. And yet, interestingly, there were a lot, a lot of people chose to share memories from that time. When we asked them to share a nostalgic memory, they could have shared anything. We didn't say right about when you were a child during the, you know, during the German bombing of southern England. Um, but a lot of people chose to write, write about that. And what was interesting about that is that they would they acknowledged in these memories. I mean, they weren't sugarcoating it. They weren't pretending it was you know something great. They're saying this was this was a time of great upheaval, of great fear, of great tragedy. Um, and yet, in that experience, it was a reminder of what was important in life. Our family was was really close. Like um, there were there were special moments in that in that time. Um, now. Fortunately, most people's nostalgic memories don't involve trauma or tragedy. Um, but the point being that even in like very, very difficult memories, if for some reason we feel a sense of nostalgia, if, if our mind kind of goes back to those memories when we're, when we're looking to, to, to feel nostalgic, it often means, at least in my opinion, is there's some important lessons tucked in, tucked in there. It might, be, um, it might not be an entirely positive memory, um, but there's something uh, something in that time, in that experience that we think um, is worthwhile, is worth remembering, worth holding on to, and, and it might even help inspire us. So even um, even experiences of loss, like some, it's not uncommon to see people have nostalgic memories that involve the loss of a loved one. Um, in fact, if you think about things like attending a, a, a funeral, um, oftentimes we sit around and we talk about memories with that, you know, with the deceased person and the, those special memories. So it's not uncommon for people to have um, sadness, loss, difficult life transitions, major disruptions in their life as part of their nostalgic memories. Um, um, but what that says, and I think that's another way nostalgic memories can really be distinguished from other types of memories, is they're not just you know, purely happy memories. Oftentimes they're meaningful memories. They're important memories. They, they, there's something that we think are impactful that are worth holding on to. And Clay, tell me, how does it work? What's the mechanism by which nostalgia is going to empower me moving forward in my life? And, you know, you describe in Past Forward, it can help resolve loneliness even. Mm -hmm. It, you know, it can help us uh, feel uh, more uh, capable in the face of challenges. You give so many benefits. How does it work to do that? Yeah. So, so yes, nostalgia has quite a few seemingly distinct functions. Um, so, We've done studies are showing that after people spend a few minutes writing about nostalgic memory, they feel a greater sense of self-esteem. We've done studies showing after people write about nostalgic memory or listen to nostalgic music, they feel a greater sense of meaning in life. They feel a greater sense of social connection. They feel more optimistic 
about the future. They actually are more creative and creative problem solving tasks. So there's all these different things that seems like, well, nostalgia is having all sorts of distinct effects. Um, but, but there is a common mechanism behind all these things or, or many of them, I think. And that is in our research, one of the things we find is nostalgic memories, and this, you know, this is another feature of nostalgic memories that, that, that distinguish them. Nostalgic memories tend to be highly social memories. They tend to involve um, close, you know, close ones, like loved ones. Not all nostalgic memories are that way. People certainly have shared memories where, you know, they've made some major accomplishment on their own. They've like done some, you know, athletic accomplishment or something all by themselves. Um, but most of the time, even in those memories, they pretty quickly talk about the people who helped them help them do that, help them accomplishment, help them co- accomplish that. And so nostalgic memories tend to be deeply social. And humans are, of course, social. And it turns out that the thing that gives us meaning in life is or social relationships is the feeling that we're making a significant impact in the lives of others. And it seems like that that sense of social significance is at the core of the nostalgic um, experience and at the, you know, the power of nostalgia lies within that. And so you might think of something like, let's think about something like creativity that seems pretty far removed from social connectedness. In fact, we often think of creativity as an act, as an extreme act of self-expression of I'm doing something very, very different, unique, um, you know, something very novel um, that's not connected to other people, but it's showing how different I am, how unique I am. Well, if you think about the psychology of creativity, it's hard to be creative when you're highly anxious or distressed in some way, because essentially creativity is saying, I'm taking a risk, I'm putting myself out there, I'm, I'm trying something different. And, when, and people don't do that very well when they feel anxious, because when you're anxious, that's not a time to try something new, it's a try, time to be safe, it's a time to be defensive, to be protective. You know, to, to focus on um, protecting the world you know, not going out there and trying to explore something new. And so creativity is actually facilitated by a sense of security. Um, you can think about this in a workplace environment. So if you have a team of uh, employees and you want them to be creative, it's not good to make them live in fear that they might lose their jobs if they come up with the wrong idea. It's better to make them feel like they live in a socially supportive environment in which it's okay to take risks. You're not going to get in trouble if what you do doesn't you know, work or you're not going to get laughed at or anything like that. We're here to try different things. So when you create that supportive environment, you actually allow people to do to try more things and to be more creative and be willing instead of their you know energy going on like re- reducing their anxiety they can really throw themselves into the more explorative act of creativity well nostalgia provides that helps provide that security because of that social function so when people are nostalgic they're reminded of times with with, with loved ones they're reminded that there are people that care about them they're reminded that they've had experiences of social success they're reminded of of, of, of things that they've done to make a positive difference in other people's lives or, you know, things that have brought them closer together with other people. And that experience offers a sense of, uh, of social security, which makes them more confident, which makes them, you know, feel a bit more equipped to be creative and to try to put themselves um, out there. And so even something like creativity and certainly things like social connectedness, self-esteem, meaning in life are facilitated um, by a feeling of deep social connection, which nostalgia helps helps cultivate that. And one other quick thing I'll say about that, it isn't just that nostalgia makes us feel socially connected by reminding us of past 
relationships. Sometimes those relationships are, are gone, right? It's, you know, um, where you don't associate with that person anymore. You know, we, we lose loved ones. Um, but what nostalgia does is by reminding you of those past experiences of, of, of deep social connection, you're emboldened, even in, even if you feel like, well, right now I'm not, I, I moved to a new city or I don't know very many people or, you know, I feel lonely. This is just a moment in time and life is bigger than this moment. And I've had other moments that were quite socially fulfilling. And so that gives me the social confidence that, oh, I can have that again. Like I can restore relationships. I can reconnect with people. I can cultivate new relationships as necessary. So nostalgia doesn't just make people feel socially connected or, or remind them of past social connections. It energizes them to socially connect in the present and energizes them to prioritize social goals over other types of goals, which helps give them that sense of confidence and comfort needed um, to be bold and creative and, and to be energized to go out and do things. So, um, so I think that, that, that deep sense of social connectedness that nostalgia helps facilitate and, and energize is at the core of a lot of the uh, all the other benefits of nostalgia. One of your suggestions to people is to try creating a nostalgia journal, mm-hmm. and I, I'm curious if you can say more and maybe offer some suggested writing prompts. Like, okay, I've got my journal, I've got one memory. Where do I get the rest of them? What writing prompts will help me? One of the things I, I, that I try to do in the in the book is. Um, a lot of times it helps to be very specific with the issue you're facing right now and to use that as a way to do sort of um, you know, these types of writing prompts that that you're talking about. And so um, if you think about a challenge you have right now or a decision you're trying to make, maybe it's like, do I take this job? Um, should I stay at my current job? I have this other opportunity. It can it can help to start like writing about nostalgic memories and, and to specifically think, try to think about memories that you feel like um, relate to the core themes of the challenge you're facing. So if you're facing a social challenge, it's good to think about, well, what did I do in the past when do I have memories that touch on themes where I've had social, you know, um, social hardships or, or, or social challenges where I've, I've, something I was going to do is potentially going to make me like lose contact with someone or is going to be an opportunity to improve a relationship with someone. Um, and so to think about specific things to those challenges. And um, but also I think that, you know, even memories that aren't that don't seem like on the surface that they're related can be quite useful um, and so it's good to try to like just come up with a bunch of different types of nostalgic memories. So, so for example, you know, maybe you have an opportunity, a professional, just, just to stick on the professional um, side of things, maybe you have a professional opportunity, but you're worried that you're like, well, this is going to involve learning this whole new set of skills. And this can especially be the case if you're a middle-aged or a little bit older and you feel like, well, I don't, you know, I don't want, there's all these new technologies coming out. Do I want to have to do that? Um, um, Think, you could think about a nostalgic memory where you've had to overcome something or it's really taken some type of persistence. And it can be in a totally different domain. So it might be like an athletic memory. It might be like, oh, when I was in high school, I decided to try this sport and had to do this and do that. And I felt really anxious and uncomfortable. And you're not saying I'm going to do that sport right now. What you're saying is there's something to that experience of adversity, of novelty, 
of having to put myself out there and try something different, of it being very difficult. And in those memories, even if it's a completely different type of experience, in those memories are, are, are clues to like my core sense of self of like my ability to do things, my 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 willingness to take risks. And you know, we actually found in in in, in some of our research that nostalgia, once you hit around age forty or, or or so, nostalgia actually makes you feel younger than you are. And one of the things we associate with youth is that like that sort of willingness to take risks, that you know, that that youthful spirit, the energetic spirit. And nostalgia can, you know, and we find that, you know, nostalgia can help you recapture that, which can be good for all sorts of things in life. So, um, so to get back to your question, I think something to do is to try to um, start with what, what do I want to work on in the present? And then just start trying to generate, you know, generate memories. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that I've found, because I, I sympathize with people who are like, well, that's going to be hard. I'm not the type of person that sits around in, 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 in journals. And I, I definitely I definitely sympathize with that. But one of the things that I've found just doing research is people often who start off with, I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have anything to say. I don't know what to say. It just takes a couple minutes and then it start the ideas start flowing. And then you get in that practice. And then oftentimes it's hard to get people to stop, <laughs> you know, because they, they dig a little deeper and they dig a little deeper. So I think, you know, that's a good way of doing it. But I should also note, I don't think journaling is the only, the only way. I mean, even doing something like creating a nostalgia playlist seems kind of like for music, like on Spotify or something, might seem kind of superficial, like, oh, you're just listening to music. But, you know, and uh, a lot of our research, we found that nostalgia, that music is actually very powerful like nostalgia cue that, you know, so some people who are maybe like, oh, I don't really want to write things. Um, there are these other types of activities that can just kind of get you thinking about these memories. Um, Scrapbooking is another one, and, you know, kind of creative activities that allow you to sort of manipulate memories in a way, you know, either through pictures or videos, you know, that really allow you to kind of interact with, with the memory. Um, some people like that more than they like writing. Um, but the cool thing about nostalgia is there's just a lot of different ways to engage in it. I remember talking to one person, for instance, who said the way they really like to experience nostalgia, sort of revisit these memories, is through cooking. Um, and as they just said, they, they, they grew up in a household where there was a lot of cooking and there was a lot of like family things around, family events and activities around cooking, you know, conversations, um, and they thought that that was kind of the best way for them to make contact with those memories. And it's true, like certainly that um, the, you know, um, our like olfactory senses are a powerful cue for nostalgia. We get familiar smells and that kind of like triggers these nostalgic memories. And for some people, that's especially powerful because they, you know, a lot of their memories were around, you know, interacting with, with food. Um, so I think that's another way of thinking about it is try to figure out, well, what is it in your life that really would help you sort of interrogate these memories um, and, and kind of extract meaningful things from them? And, you know, journaling is a powerful way to do that. There's a whole bunch of other research unrelated to nostalgia on the power of journaling. Um, there's something that seems very powerful about writing out things. Um, but it's nothing, it, it, you know, it's just to say it's not the only way. There's lots of ways to creatively engage with these memories. You said something, Clay, that nostalgia could help me feel younger, help one feel younger. Can you, I don't quite understand that. How does that work? Yeah, so 
we, you know, we actually got this idea because we started to see like news stories where people were talking. I don't know if you have you ever heard of like um, these adult camps, like you know, like they they have you know kids go to camp sometimes, like summer sure. camp. Well, there was this phenomenon a number of years ago um, where they were putting camps together for adults, but it was like a summer camp for kids. It's like they would do a lot of the activities they did when they were kids. And okay, so that, you know, maybe that's just like, a, you know, most people, most adults aren't going to summer camp, but it's like, well, what's that? What's that tapping into? And another thing I was thinking about is music. You know, a lot of our music nostalgia is for music from our youth, right? Um, when our, our, our teenage years. And there's something, you know, there's actually this concept called the reminiscence bump, which is we tend to have a very positive attitude towards um, tr- like pop cultural trends and products that um, that were prominent in our youth, um, whether it's cars or fashions or music, mu- movies. Um, so there's something about like youthfulness that we tend to associate with a lot of nostalgia. Now you can be nostalgic about anything from any time in your life. It doesn't have to be like when you're a kid or your teenage years. But there there's something about like we like. We like we like the pop cultural phenomenon, and we like these kinds of experiences associated with childhood and 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 youth. And there's this there's this whole line of research in developmental psychology about life, the life course. So developmental psychology we tend to think of as about being about little kids, but we develop throughout our whole lives. We go through different you know we go through different phases of life that we're st- you know um, many of us are still maturing <laughs> even in middle age and beyond, right? And um, so there's something about in this research that they found that people don't always feel their age. And so there's a difference between biological age and what's sometimes referred to as subjective age. And so some people feel younger than, you know, than they are. Some people feel older than they are, um, depending on a whole host of things. And so we, we, we found this research was like, oh, like people's perception of their age, how they feel doesn't always map onto how they actually are biologically. And then we wonder, it's like, well, we wonder if nostalgia is involved in that at all. Now, there might be all sorts of things that make people feel younger than they are, or older than they are, but we're especially interested in nostalgia, of course. And what we found is when people spend a few minutes writing about a nostalgic memory, um, listening to nostalgic music, um, once, the, and we did this, so we, we took people from like 18 up to like 80 some years old, right? And we had them write about nostalgic um, experience or listen to nostalgic music. And what we found is for young people, engaging in nostalgic reflection didn't really, you know, change how old they felt. Like we knew their actual age and we would ask them, how, how do you feel? And young people feel young, basically. Um, but what we noticed is like, as people got older, um, we started to see this divergence between how old they were and how old they felt if they engaged in nostalgia. And it was around, depended on the study, it was around the age of 39, 40, 41. We did this across a lot of studies, but basically the punchline is around 40 years of age. Nostalgia starts to make people feel statistically significantly younger than they actually are. And then we didn't just ask them up their age. We, we, we gave them these other things like, do you think you could, you know, run as fast as a, as a young person? Do you think you could do this? Do you think you could do that? And what we found is when people are nostalgic, um, above the age of 40 or so, that nostalgia helps them feel a lot, longer, a lot younger 
than they are. We called this paper the fountain of youth. And it, it seems to have something to do with like uh, in these memories, like we're, we're recapturing that feeling of what it felt like to be young again. And it's energizing. Um, and so a lot of the things that we do as we age naturally, you know, as we listen to old music, rewatch old movies that we loved, um, share, you know, just talk, get together with friends and, you know, kind of talk about old memories and things like that. I think that has a powerful like function of, you know, of reminding us of that, that the inner energetic youthful spirit we had when we were young. Um, and the reason I think that there's something special about that period of time and, and youth is that's really when we're becoming like our true selves, right? When, um, that's when we're starting to get freedom or we're starting to getting decide what we want to do with our lives. When we're not just like, you know, you know, when you're little, you kind of have to play with whoever your parents put you in front of, you know, you have to kind of do whatever your parents say, but once you, you enter adolescence, you start to have more opportunities to develop your own friendship networks to figure out what, you know, what you want to do with your career or with your life going forward and form your own path forward. And there seems to be something powerful about that time of self-development of really figuring out like who you are or starting to figure that out, I should say. Um, and we like retapping into that. Uh, and, you know, people will talk about how they felt free. They felt like the, you know, optimistic, they felt hopeful, they felt energized. They had all this youthful energy and, you know, having opportunities to reconnect with that as we get older, when, you know, when we often feel like, oh, we've got all these responsibilities and duties and life's difficult, we're paying bills, we got, we got we're raising kids, we're taking care of, um, um, we're taking care of older family members, you know, we're doing all these like adult responsibilities, it can be very, very helpful to tap into that youthful energy again. And this sort of reminds us of, oh, yeah, I used to, I used to like that. I used to laugh at those things. I used to enjoy those things. Um, and, and so I think cultivating hobbies and activities around that is a good way to feel, feel young at heart. I want to call our conversation the surprising powers of nostalgia. Did you discover anything, Clay, in your research where you said, whoa, this is so surprising? I, I wouldn't have known that. This is so surprising. Yeah, a, a few things. So one we talked about uh, earlier, which is the extent to which people have nostalgic memories that involve very, very difficult, unpleasant, even tragic experiences in their life really, you know, helps reveal the, the bittersweet nature of nostalgia that, you know, the that it's, it's, we often feel very positive. Nostalgia lifts our spirits. It increases our positive mood, but it comes with this tinge of sadness and loss too. Um, and so I was kind of, I was kind of surprised at like the sort of, um, again, it's not that everyone's sharing those types of experience or even the, that most people are, but that, you know, there is this element of like people can find nostalgia in a lot of difficult life circumstances. And so that was, um, that was very educational. And it was also very helpful for like, kind of thinking about, well, why? Like what, you know, getting to that, like the functional, like use of nostalgia, is not nostalgia just a fun distraction or is it, is it really useful in some other ways? And those type of memories really served as to me as like a good clue that nostalgia is not just about like, silly stuff from our youth you know what i mean like we often in popular culture at least we often think of oh nostalgia is about like 
you know, the fashions from, you know, from our youth. And it's just sort of a fun, entertaining thing. And I think that's definitely true. Like that's part of it. Um, but those types of memories really revealed that, you know, there's often a very, very deep existential, even, even very difficult, like life experiences that people derive a lot of sense of meaning from, um, and that they, they have nostalgia for. So that, that, that was one thing that was surprising. The other thing that was, was really surprising and, and, and really has played a dramatic role in changing my own view of nostalgia, which has evolved over the years, is the amount of future-oriented language that I've seen in people's nostalgic stories. What I mean by that is a lot of times you'll see a story where some we'll, we'll say, okay, share a nostalgic memory with us and how it makes you feel. And people will write something like, oh, I used to do this. I used to spend summers with my grandmother or I used to, you know, um, I used to go after school with my friends and do this thing. And it was really special. And a lot of times at the end of that, you'll see, and this makes me feel grateful or this makes me feel hopeful or this makes me feel optimistic. Um, and you started to see these clues of, well, people aren't just saying, oh, I had these great experiences behind me. And, you know, thanks for reminding me of them. I, you know, it's kind of nice to revisit them. They were saying that's actually helpful for me going forward. And that was un unsolicited. Like at the time, I didn't have any sense that nostalgia would make people optimistic um, or that would, you know, any kind of future oriented thinking. I really thought it was just going to comfort them, like to, to revisit that. Um, and so seeing the amount of, of like kind of positive language in, in these narratives really was what started to get not just me, but other researchers thinking that is nostalgia really just about the past or are people, is it kind of energizing? Is it kind of like a future oriented experience? And that really, um, that really started to, to, to drive a lot of our research to where we actually more explicitly did experiments looking at future-oriented thinking. So we'd have people write about nostalgic event or some other type of event, and then we would explicitly, you know, ask them. We'd give them questionnaires about how optimistic they are about the future. Um, and what we'd find is people who engaged in nostalgic reflection um, became more optimistic about the future than people who thought about other types of life experiences. Um, and so that was a very, that was that was something I did not expect. I did not expect that people would have this future-oriented sort of angle to their nostalgic memories, and that really shifted the focus from me thinking of nostalgia as this like defensive, like past oriented experience to really a more future oriented experience that, um, another way of saying it is I used to think of, okay, so life's difficult. People are going through something. So they turn to the past for comfort and that's good for them because they, you know, once they're comforted, you know, they'll relax and they'll be like, okay, now I can move forward. But that's a very defensive way of thinking of nostalgia. It meets like a psychological defense. But then I started to think of nostalgia as, well, no, people aren't just comforting themselves. They're actually looking for ideas. They're looking for inspiration. There's like a future-oriented motivation there. They might not realize that. I'm not saying people are consciously saying, okay, I need, I need some ideas. I'll, I'll retreat to my memories. I just think our brains are doing that. Where do I get ideas? Well, I get ideas from all the things I've, the experiences I've accumulated of, over time. And maybe some of those experiences are especially important and nostalgia helps direct me towards those especially important ones. It kind of filters it, it. Nostalgia is like, oh, I have this bank of special memories 
and nostalgia helps me access those. And those special memories are what I need to have ideas going forward. Historians will say, well, we need to study the past because that helps us, you know, build a better future. And we think about that at the, we, most people would agree with that at a, you know, at a large civilizational level, learn the lessons of, you know, history. I think this happens at a very intimate personal, you know, level at, at the individual level, which is we need our personal life histories to, to build a better future. And nostalgia can help direct us towards the, you know, towards the elements of our life that we think really, not that we want to repeat those things, which is, I think, another kind of myth about nostalgia. People aren't just trying to repeat the past. What they're saying is there's something special in the past that'd be nice to incorporate into my life going forward. Even if my life's dramatically different going forward, um, there's something there that I'd like to incorporate into that. And I think that that um, discovering that by just reading people's nostalgic memories changed the course of, uh, of this research dramatically. Clay, I want to end on a personal note, if that's okay. So I'm going to ask you to share with us a nostalgic memory that has some superpower effect for you in your life. Can you do that? Yes. So I will, I, I like the memory I'm about to share. I, I like because I think it is an example of a memory that on the surface people would say, oh, that just shows that nostalgia is kind of this consumer phenomenon, right? Like people just sell you companies just like to sell you stuff <laughs> that remind you of the past. And, you know, there, there are people that have this very consumer view of nostalgia, right? Like companies are just tapping and they're exploiting your nostalgia to sell you stuff, right? Um, and I think that that there are, of course, that's, there are, obviously that's a very powerful marketing strategy. Um, but that's not really why I think people care about products from their past. Um, so the memory that I'd like to share is um, when I was a kid, my parents didn't have much money. We were poor. And um, I remember wanting a Nintendo really badly. Like other kids at school had a Nintendo. <laughs> you know, the, this was in the early mid 80s, 1980s when this just came out. Other kids had a Nintendo. Um, we couldn't afford a Nintendo. Um, so we didn't get a Nintendo. And the, the Nintendo had been out, uh, you know, um, a couple years and lots of people had these Nintendos and we didn't have one. And then one Christmas we got a Nintendo and, you know, I don't know how my parents pulled it off or how they afforded it, but it was a really, really big deal. Now the reason I'm, you know, and to this day, like I, you know, I don't have a lot of time to play video games. It's not, you know, I'd rather spend time outside and in nature doing other things. Um, but I still have this like strong attachment the Nintendo and I still play, you know, I, I have the new, the Nintendo Switch, like the new, you know, the new Nintendo and Nintendo obviously is a company that's built a great deal of success around nostalgia. Um, well, you know, the, so, so the reason I'm sharing that memory is because people will be like, oh, like Christmas morning, you get this Nintendo. That seems like a really superficial nostalgic memory. You care about this stupid product that you, you know, this stupid, stupid electronic product that you got. Um, but the reason that's a special memory is because I knew it was a hardship for my parents. And look, at the time I was a kid, so I didn't really think about that. 
But looking back on it, I knew that, you know, my parents must have, you know, they must have worked really hard to make that happen. That must have been very difficult. Um, and I definitely cherished that, you know, th that that Nintendo very much. Um, and so I think uh, I think a lot of times people think of um, nostalgia about objects as being materialistic or, or you know, kind of silly. Um but if you look at if you look at people's nostalgic memories around objects, even things like trophies or like people will have their high school letter jacket or trophy from something they won when they were a kid. Um, if you look at uh, or a movie collection, collections another great example. People have all sorts of collections of objects, um, collectors. It might seem like materialistic on the surface, but really those objects are just symbols that that remind you of what was really going on. Um, I have all these memories playing Nintendo with my younger brother. I mean, most of my, you know, like nostalgic memories, most of my video game memories are not isolated experiences of me, like sitting in a room by myself, like just vegging out in front of the TV. They're playing video games with my brother. They're playing video games with our neighbors and things like that. So um, I share that memory because I think a lot of times, you know, people should, if, if you think of something, even in your own life, you think, oh, that's kind of a silly thing that I care about. Um, care about this, whether it's antique dishes, um, old quilts, old photographs, um, your, you know, a, a vinyl record collection <laughs> or any of these things. Um, most of the time, those things are just symbols that help connect you to what's really important, which is who you, you know, who you were with, the, re the relationships that were involved in getting that thing, sharing that thing, experiencing that thing. And so our nostalgia for objects, for things, it's really a nostalgia for people and for relationships. Um, and, and that's why I like to share that, that, that memories. I think it, it nicely captures that most of the stuff that people dismiss as superficial consumer nostalgia. Actually, if you scratch just a bit, you'll, you'll find something much deeper. Clay Routledge, you have opened my mind and my heart to the surprising powers of nostalgia. Thank you so much. He's the author of the new book, Past Forward, How Nostalgia Can Help You Live a More Meaningful Life. Thanks so much, Clay. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>